Okay, well, today we're starting a new foundation uh, in our foundation series. We've gone through the Trinity so far. We've gone through the Bible, the foundation of the Bible. Uh, we've gone through the foundation of the doctrine of man and sin. Uh, we've gone through the foundation of prayer and now uh, the atonement. Um, let me just tell you my, my history concerning this doctrine. When I first became a Christian, uh, you know, I didn't really know much about the atonement, didn't know the depths of it, the riches of it. I just knew that Jesus died for me. He died to forgive me, and he died to deliver me. That's what I knew. That I was going to be changed, and my relationship with God was changed. And if you know that much, you can be saved. Uh, so a lot of what we're going to talk about in the midst of this foundation for the next four weeks or so is not necessarily salvational. Okay, um, but I think it's still important to go deeper in these things. Not only to save ourselves from false doctrine, from false views of the atonement, but also because of the riches and the depths of God's love. And I, I think as we go deeper with the atonement, we'll see that more clearly. We'll see the depth and the riches of God's love and the depth and the riches of what we don't deserve of what he did for us. And we have a more clear perception of what he did for us and how it applies to us, how the application occurs. So when I first became a Christian, I believed that, and I started becoming an open-air preacher, uh, you know, back in 2004, 2003, something like that. I can't remember exact de- uh, year, but, uh, you know, I was taught through people like Ray Comfort, you know, you broke the law, Jesus paid your fine. And it sounds simple enough to me. It sounded like it made sense. It sounded like it would help other people who are hearing me preach make sense of it as well. And so I, I kind of latched onto it for a while. And um, I, I was at the point, at one point, this is in 2006, where I was uh, this close to becoming a Calvinist. And I began to think about a lot of things that I believed and how scriptural they were or not. And I, I began to think one day about this, what I was saying in the open air. You know, you broke the law, Jesus paid your fine. I began to think about that. And of course, it would make sense with Calvinism because there's a limited atonement. Christ pays the fine for a certain amount of people. There's no way they can be lost. They're definitely going to be saved because Christ did everything that was needed to be done and they're definitely going to be saved and they're going to stay saved to the end because he paid my fine. He's not going to take the fine money back. He paid it. So as I was thinking about Calvinism, possibly, I was like a four-pointer almost at this point in time, really considering these things. I, the one point I really couldn't get a hold of was the L, the limit atonement, and I began to really dive into the atonement. Just really see what the Bible says, all the different words surrounding atonement, what they, what they mean from the Greek and Hebrew, and what the passages say, if they actually say what people were saying they said, or if they actually said something different. And I dove into it, it just rocked my world. It changed everything. And if it wasn't for this doctrine and me digging deeper in this, I would not be where I'm at right now. I'd probably be a Calvinist. Uh, but uh, he propelled me to dive deeper into this. So this doctrine is very important to me. And um, as we dive deeper, ho- hopefully it is already very important to you, but as we dive deeper, hopefully it will become more and more important to you. We'll see that the depths of God's love, as Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, uh, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That, those words right there, Christ died for the ungodly. If that doesn't warm your heart, if that doesn't affect you in some way, there's something wrong. Those four words should affect you more than probably any other four words in the Bible. Christ died for the ungodly. That's five words, actually. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, I think that scripture sums up all of God's love in this culmination of this man, Christ Jesus. 
this God in the flesh who came to lay his life down for sinners. That's really the culmination. I mean, all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all point towards this man, Jesus Christ. This one who came in the flesh to die for you and me. And if it wasn't for him doing that, none of us would be where we are right now. We all still be sinners and lost. As lost as lost can be. So let's talk about what the atonement is. The word atonement is made up of three words. At one mint. At one mint. And really that's synonymous with people being joined together at one. Being brought together to be one. And if you look up in the thesaurus, you would see next to atonement, reconciliation. Okay? You think of two people reconciling. Two people who have a problem between each other and they come back together and there's no problem any longer. There's reconciliation. There's at one mint. So what is, what is the, the two groups that are brought together to be at one again? Well, it's God and it's sinners. God and sinners. And, and what is it that is driving them apart? It's sin. That's what's driving them apart. So that, that's the problem. And sin basically does two things to the sinner. One, it separates them from God in relationship. And two, it brings about the justice of God upon them. And so when you have an at-one-ment, you have an atonement, you have a reconciliation, it must take care of those two problems. It must take care of the committing of sin... And it must take care of the justice of God that is upon the sinner. The wrath of God is upon it. It must take care of that. And it must also take care of uh, this broken relationship that is due to the committing of sin. So the atonement takes care of these two problems. The at one meant or the reconciliation must solve both. Not just one of these problems... But both, if your, if your view of the atonement only solves one of those problems, you don't have a proper view of the atonement. If your view of the atonement only solves God's justice problem, but it still allows the sinner, it doesn't motivate them or influence them to stop sinning, you don't have the proper view of the atonement. Because they still have separation between God and man because he's continuing to sin. So there's separation for two reasons, but one reason is sin, but it causes two things, the justice of God and the broken relationship. So the atonement must cause the beneficiary, the, the sinner, he's the one that gets the benefits from the atonement, it must cause him or her to stop sinning. Not by force, but by influence. So that he or she would stop being separated from God. Because a sin is what causes separation in the first place. Not only that, the atonement must also be sufficient in the eyes of the offended party. That's God. It must be sufficient in His eyes to bring about a conditional offer of forgiveness. So it must motivate, influence, cause the sinner, the offending party, to stop his offending, and it must cause the offended party, God, who's been offended by the sinner, it must cause him to see the atonement as sufficient enough to give a conditional offer of forgiveness to the offending party. And so any view of the atonement that doesn't cover both of those bases is an inaccurate and incorrect view of the atonement. So the offending, par the offending party is offered a conditional offer of forgiveness, an offer of peace, if the offending party, the sinner, will lay down his or her arms of war, his sin. Or her sin. So let me just give you, a, with all these things in mind, let me give you just a real concise, as I can at this point in time, a concise definition of the atonement. The means that God provides that influences the sinner to stop sinning and is sufficient for God to offer forgiveness to sinners. Bring about a reconciliation or an at 
one mint. Let me say that again. The atonement is the means God provides that influences the sinner to stop sinning. And it's sufficient for God to offer forgiveness to sinners, bring about a reconciliation or an act one mint. Here's what I hope to cover over the next three or four weeks. Just to kind of give you an idea. The definitions of words in regards to the atonement. There's lots of horrible definitions out there that are not based upon the Greek words. They're based upon people taking their view of the atonement and posing it upon the scripture and cause and, and creating extra biblical definitions, like the word impute, the word propitiation, uh, the word redemption, ransom, what that means. Mediator and pardon and forgiveness. You know, does forgiveness mean that uh, someone paid your fine? Or does it mean that your fine is set aside? Does forgiveness mean that someone was punished for you? Or does it mean that the punishment is set aside? So we're going to talk about different definitions of words as we go through this, this uh, foundation. We're also going to look at Old Testament shadows that are fulfilled in Christ. We look at the New Testament doctrine of the atonement, who it is for, the extent of the atonement. Is it limited, or is it unlimited? If it is limited, who who is it limited by? Who is it limited to? Very important things to understand. How it is applied, the application of the atonement. What does it do to both parties involved? We'll also look at different atonement theories. You know, there's a lot of atonement theories out there. There's basically four main ones that we'll discuss. So we'll discuss the theories and the history of them. And if we should hold to any of them or not. Okay, so let's, let's start today by looking at some of the Old Testament shadows. So what, what is a shadow? Is a shadow the person, him or herself? Now, a shadow is a representation of that person. It might tell you something about the person, depending on how detailed the shadow is. It might tell you how tall they are, but it might not. It might tell you uh, what their hair looks like, depending on how detailed the shadow is. It might tell you how big or skinny the, sh- the person is by the shadow. It might tell you uh, if they're a boy or a girl. You know, depending on the details of the shadow. But the shadow is not the person themselves. And if you follow the shadows around for long enough, what will it do? It will lead you to the person to whom the shadow belongs. That's what shadows do. And that is the purpose of the Old Testament shadows, to bring you to the one whose shadow they cast, that you might know him as you should be known. Not in ignorance, but in full truth. And the farther, if you think about shadows, the farther the shadow is cast away from a person or from a thing, uh, the less details there are, and the harder it is to know about that person from the shadow. As the shadow is cast less of a distance from the person, the more details you see about that person from their shadow, and the closer you get to the person to whom the shadow belongs. And God's revelation about anything in Scripture, including the atonement, is kind of like that. It's a progressive revelation. It starts out real basic, and over time gets more and more detailed along the way, constantly pointing to Jesus until he comes in due time, like I just quoted a little bit ago, in due time, to reveal and manifest himself in the flesh, and we can see the person who has been casting the shadows all along. So let's start in the beginning to see uh, some of these shadows. Look at Genesis chapter t- uh, chapter 3. This is really the, the first shadow we're going to see of Christ, I believe. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 14. It's after Adam and Eve have sinned, and God is giving the punishment to the serpent. In verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, you are accursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In your Bible, that's probably capitalized, less seed there. Not because it's capitalized in the Hebrew, because they, the translators think it's talking about Jesus, which it is, in my opinion. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is one of the first shadows of Jesus. And then what is it telling us here? What is it telling us? John? Jesus will have victory. See, that day, who had the victory that day? The serpent did. He deceived them to the point where they didn't believe God and they believed Him instead. To the point where His relationship with His creation had been broken now. And His creation was willing to, to through pride, say, well, I want to be God, just like Satan did. Instead of obeying God's rules, they believed the Satan, the serpent, that God was lying to them. That God was trying to hold something back from them. And so there is a sense of defeat at this point, because now God's now God's going to divvy out the punishments to even to Adam. But what he's saying here is that the seed, singular, he will have victory. He will bruise the head of the serpent. Yes, his heel will be bruised. Jesus' heel will be bruised, but Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent as well. So we see kind of like the ending of the book in the beginning. We see a foreshadowing way before Revelation is ever written. We see a foreshadowing of what will happen in the end. That Christ, the seed, will have victory. And in the end, those who put their trust in this seed will have victory as well. Go down to verse um, 21. See another shadow of Jesus here. It says, also for Adam and his wife... The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, we saw earlier, I mean, we didn't read this, but you've, you've read this before, I'm, I'm assuming, in Genesis 3. Earlier, they sewed together fig leaves uh, to make a covering for them. And really, in, in the Hebrew, it means apron. So it's a very skimpy covering. I like to use that verse that I'm preaching to bikini-clad women uh, about the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, fig leaves. And God obviously didn't see that as proper. As enough covering. So he clothed them with what? Skin. And, and, and in the uh, original language, the skin there, I can't remember if it was Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament or the Hebrew, it means literally leather. So it's coming from an animal's skin. We know that. And for you to be clothed in animal skin, what does it require? A dead animal. You can't take the skin off the animal and the animal will still be alive, right? So sin, in order to be covered properly, because the result of them sinning was what? They realized they were naked. And so to remedy that problem, blood was required. A death had to come because of their sin. So we see from the beginning, there's going to be victory. There's a little glimmer of hope. It's going to be a long time, probably almost 6,000, I mean, 4,000 years from then that Christ would come. But there's a glimmer of hope. And not only that, God provided a way to cover up the results of their sin. God said blood is required to take care of the situation. So you see this right from the beginning. Let's go to Genesis 4. Look at the Adam and Eve's sons. In verse 1 it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have required a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, 
His desire is for you, and you should rule over it. So we see God respects Abel's offering, but he doesn't respect Cain's offering. Now, we don't know why, but we know there's a problem with Cain. So we know even if there is an offering for sin, if your heart isn't right, it's not going to do you any good. Even if there is, I mean, people might assume that the reason why God didn't respect Cain's offering is because he didn't offer an animal. That may be true, that may not be true. But even if he did offer an animal, if his heart wasn't right, God wouldn't have respected it. He wouldn't have received it. It done him no good. Because going back to one of our original points of the Talmud, one of the original purposes is to change the person receiving the benefits of it. And that didn't happen to Cain, did it? In fact, he shows it because right after this conversation with God, telling him that sin lies at the door, but you need to rule over it. Don't submit to it. Don't let it in. He lets it in, doesn't he? And he kills his brother. And has some serious consequences from that. So far we've seen that, that there'll be victory in the end, that death was required because of people's sin. And that if your heart isn't right when you bring an offering, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference in your life. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament too. I'm not going to touch on that today, but how God says, I do not delight in your sacrifice and your offerings. Was it because he was changing his sacrificial system at that point in time? No, it's because it wasn't having the desired effect upon the people who were bringing the sacrifices. And if the atonement of Christ hasn't had the desired effect upon you, it's doing you no good. No good at all. It's another theological fact. It's not a doctrinal accuracy. So do you no good on Judgment Day if it doesn't affect you in the way it should? Impact you the way it impacted Abel? Instead of the way it impacted Cain. Do you walk out of church on Sunday, you sing about the blood, and you walk out, and you treat people selfishly? You treat people rudely? Do you do that? If so, are those songs you're singing in the presence of God, in the place that you're singing, is it having the desired effect upon you? It's a good question to ask yourself, friends. Let's go to Genesis chapter 8. It's after the flood. Noah and his family are spared through the ark, which itself is a shadow of Christ. And notice, they were delivered from the wrath of God in the midst of the wrath of God. A little eschatological fact there. That God doesn't have to take people out of this world in order to deliver them from His wrath. He can protect them while they're still here. So we see the flood is, a, is an overall picture of Christ is the ark. And if you're in Him, guess what? The wrath of God doesn't touch you. It doesn't touch you. As long as you're in Him. But hey, if Noah would have jumped out of the boat and went overboard, he'd been dead like the rest of them. Just like the rest of them. But we see one of the first things Noah does when he gets off the boat in Genesis 8, verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. You see, when when the sacrifice is offered properly, it's pleasing to God. When the sacrifice has desired effect upon you, it's soothing aroma to the Lord. Like when you walk in a room and say, that smells good, the apple pie. Oh, those chocolate chip cookies smell so good. Multiply that by infinity and you'll see how God feels when he sees the repentant offerer who's coming to him and he's giving his whole life as a living sacrifice to God. That's how God feels when someone brings that to him. That's how he felt when, when Noah brought him. One of the, it's the first thing he did out the way. He, he gave the, the clean animals. His, and this is, you see now one of the reasons why he had seven of every clean animal and two of every unclean. Because he needed some extra ones, didn't he? He wanted to bring sacrifices to God. And put yourself in Noah's shoes. You get off the boat, everything's dead. Really, the only food you have are these clean animals. And you're going to take of your supply and give it to God and kill them and not eat any of it? Just because it's a soothing aroma to Him? That's a sacrifice right there. You're taking from your livelihood. 
Who knows how long it took for those animals to propagate and have more to eat? Who knows how long it took for vegetation to spring back up and have something to eat from that? It's a very sacrificial thing Noah did. And it was pleasing to God. So when the sacrifice in the Old Testament was offered properly, by, the, by the, a proper heart of the offerer, it was a, as a soothing aroma to God. Go to Genesis 22. We know that God told Abraham many times that he would give him a son. That he would do this thing. And we know how Sarah responded initially. She laughed about it. Because she was old. She was well past childbearing age. But if God says something, does it is he turn back on himself? Does he lie to people? He's not a man that he should lie. So when God says he will do something, he will do it. Now, there may be some time frame in between when he tells you he will do it and when he actually does it. But praise the Lord, if you allow him, he'll work in your heart and mind. And if you don't become like Abraham and sleep, and he slept with his concubine, produced Ishmael from that, and it will cause you lots of problems down the road, if you'll just stay in that refining fire and allow God to mold you and make you and work you into what He wants you to be in the, in the process of coming to that point, which is what He promised to you, you'll come out much better in the end. And so Abraham was promised a seed. And we see in Genesis 21 and verse 12, there were some problems between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael would mock Isaac. And so Sarah complained to Abraham about it. And Abraham came to God about it. And God said in verse 12 of Genesis 21, But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad, talking about Ishmael, or because of your bondwoman, talking about Hagar. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. So the seed that God promised to Abraham was not going to be through Ishmael. It was going to be through Isaac. That's what Romans 9 talks about. But then, something happens. Now, is God lying to him in verse 12? In, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Is God lying to him there? Let's go to Genesis 22. Let's see if Abraham believed God. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. They said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Put yourself in his shoes for a second. You've been waiting for this son for 25 years. You got him now. Your only son Isaac. The one who I said your seed shall be called. Go kill him. That's a test of faith right there. Test of faith. So let's read on. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place at which God had told him. Then on the third day, hmm, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, took the fire in his hand and knife, and the two of them were together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? Listen to Abraham's response. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. So did, did Abraham think in his mind at this point that God had gone back on his promise and that God was actually telling him and what God was going to allow him and not stop him from killing his son, Isaac? I don't think so. You know, he, 
you'll hear atheists sometimes mock this story and say, oh, well, if God told you to kill your son, would you do it? And they point back to the story. What He was obeying God and going through these steps, but he knew in his heart, I believe, from what he's saying here and from what God had told him before, that he wasn't going to have to follow through with it. That God was going to provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And we don't know how old uh, Isaac is at this point, but he's a lad, which means a young man. Uh, he might have been anywhere from like 8 years old up to 14 years old. And uh, if he's like, uh, you know, Isaiah's age or Joshua's age or Daniel's age or Jason's age, it would take some submission on his part too to let his father do these things to him and put him on this altar. So there's a submission to his father's will. Verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know it, you fear God, so you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. It's like his prized possession. Imagine waiting or saving up 25, I mean, he didn't save up for it, God blessed him with it, but imagine saving up some for 25 years. You put all your life towards this one thing, God says, give it up. That's what it's like. And he was willing to go, and that was a supreme test for Abraham. To prove to God, to prove to himself that he really did love God supremely above all else, including his son. That his son was not an idol in his life. Can you say that? Can you say that? That there are no idols in your life? That God called you to give up anything in this life? You'd give it up for Him? Even your son? Verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Did God provide? He sure did. Even to the just getting ready to do it, God provided. At just the right time, God provided. In due time, Christ came. Just the right time. God's not late. Maybe in your mind you think he's late, but he's not late. And then we see in verse 14. Abraham gives God a new name. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, which is Yahweh Jireh, or Jehovah Jireh. Ever heard of that? Jehovah Jireh, he provides. And he does provide. He's proven it to me over and over again. He does provide whatever you need. He doesn't allow his people to go hungry. He doesn't call his people to do something and not provide. He provides. And the mount of the Lord shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants to the stars of the heaven as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so we see some shadows here, several shadows. One, you see, it's like a picture of God the Father and God the Son. God the Father, represented by Abraham. God the Son is uh, represented by Isaac. You see the, the Father willing to give his only Son. You see the Son willing to lay down his life. And you see, going back to stepping away from that picture now, you see, in all reality, who provides the ram? God provides the ram. See, all throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's the people bringing their lambs, bringing their goats. Boy, this is a picture of it. In the end, God will provide a lamb. 
God provides. The sacrificial system has been done away with, and God provides the lamb at just the right time. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God has not withheld his only son from you. He's not withheld him from you. He's offered him up for your sins. He, and he, he stepped back and he allowed sinful men to do those things to him. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. This is the last one we're going to touch on for today. It's, it's the Passover. Now, at this point, the Israelites are in Egypt. They're in bondage. They're in slavery to Egypt. And God sees their problem. He sends Moses as a deliverer. And, of course, as you know, the story of the, as you read through Exodus, you know there were nine plagues given. And after each time, the, Egypt, the Pharaoh would harden his heart. And he wouldn't give up. And then the tenth plague came. Let's read in Exodus 12. Let's read in verse, um, verse three, uh, verse five. This is talking about the lamb that should be offered on Passover. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the door, the two doorposts and, the, and on the lintel of the house. Lintel is the horizontal beam across the doorpost or across the doorway, where they eat it. So we see here that this lamb shall be without blemish. Now of course, lambs can't be sinful; they're amoral creatures. But they can use that blemish in another way, physically. But that's a picture of Christ's moral lack of blemishes. He was perfect. He was holy. He was sinless. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He completely obeyed God. He fulfilled the law. So you see a picture of him in this, this, this lamb. And you see a picture of him in the doorpost and the lintel, putting the blood on it. Let's read on to see what happens. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of of Egypt. So when the blood is put on the doorpost and the lintel of the house, as long as you're in the house, you are free from the wrath of God harming you. It passes over you. It passes over you. Now, did the wrath of God hit the lamb instead? That lamb who was killed and the blood was put on the doorpost and lintel, did the wrath of God hit him instead? Who did the wrath of God hit? People outside the house. Outside the house that had the blood on the doorpost and lintel. So the wrath of God will, if you are in the house of Christ, you walk through the blood on the doorpost, you're inside that house, the wrath of God will pass over you. But what would have happened if they would have walked out of the house right when the wrath of God was coming? That's right. So you see conditional salvation here. This is what you must do in order for the wrath of God not to touch you, to pass over you. The wrath of God was not poured out upon the, the one who saved them, the blood of the lamb. It wasn't poured out on that lamb. It was poured out on the wicked people. So the wrath of God wasn't satisfied until it was poured out on the wicked who are not protected by the blood of the lamb. Let's go to uh, Exodus 12 and verse 27. 
This is they're, they're saying what they will say when uh, they leave. What they what they say to their children. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So not only does the blood of the Lamb protect you from the wrath of God, it delivers you from your bondage. It delivers you. They were in bondage to the Egyptians. And if you read on in Exodus 12, not only were they delivered, they plundered the Egyptians. They took from their possessions so they didn't walk away with empty-handed. So they can live wherever they were going to and not be starving. So let's, let's just review. And we might talk about the Old Testament a little bit more next week. But we see in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, and we see that there is victory in the end. There's a foreshadowing of the victory in the end. We see in verse 21 that blood was required because to cover the people as a result of their sin. The blood was required. Something had to die. We see in Genesis 4, 2 through 7, that if you come to Christ in light of a sacrifice or an offering and you don't have a right heart, he's not pleased with that. He's not pleased with that. We see in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, that when you do bring it a proper way and your heart is proper, it's like a, a smell of a soothing aroma to God. He's very pleased with that. We see in Genesis 22 that God provides his only son. He provides the ram. He provides his only son. And we see in Exodus chapter 12 that as long as you're behind the blood, you're okay. But if you're not, there's a problem. And we also saw in the ark another conditional thing, that if you're in the ark, you're okay. The wrath of God will not touch you. But as, long as, as soon as you come out of that ark, as soon as you come out of that house, you're open to the wrath of God yourself. And lastly, we saw finally that the sacrifice of God, the Passover lamb, delivers you from bondage. And so as we go through the Old Testament and then the New Testament and we talk about different theories, what I want you to get is the overall full picture of what God's been saying through history about his lamb, about this man Jesus Christ. And he's been saying the same thing over and over again. And people who make theories that go against these things, that don't incorporate these things, have made man-made doctrines which do not incorporate all the scriptures concerning Christ, what he did for you, and what he can do for you and in you. So hopefully you've seen a little bit of that today to start out with. Okay, let's open the floor for questions, objections, or things you want to add. Brother John? The wrath of God is uh, definitely satisfied with having sinners in hell for all eternity. If he wasn't satisfied with that, he would have done something differently. Uh, but obviously God's ideal will for a sinner is that they stop sinning and don't receive his wrath. But his wrath is definitely satisfied in having sinners in hell for all eternity and pouring out his wrath upon them. Otherwise, he would have done it a different way. So he, we've talked before... He, Sinners are sinners because they choose to be sinners. It's their free will, and he's not going to make them stop. So for those who refuse to stop, this is his answer for them. This is his answer for that problem that he gives to them. And it's a warning to them, too. And, uh, the question I have is about <clears throat> excuse me, about public justice. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, this, you know, some people hold to the view that you could maybe expound on that a little bit, so... Well, when I when I get into different theories, I'll talk about this some more. I'm not really going to touch on it today because it just it isn't applicable to what we're talking about right now. But it is applicable to the, this foundation and uh, the different theories I will talk about are the ransom view, uh, which is the early church fathers and a guy named Gustav Alin wrote a book called Christus Victor 
and he has a different view of what the early church fathers believed compared to what people think they believe. And I kind of hold to what he said uh, concerning what they believe. And then you have the moral government view, you have the satisfaction or penal substitution view, and then you have the moral influence view. Those are the main views. Um, and we'll talk about that maybe next week or the week after that. Yeah. But Tracy? It's probably a really minor point. Uh, the Bible really doesn't say, like, like you pointed out, uh, why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Mm-hmm. But I have heard many people teach that, like what, what you said, that uh, people say that it was rejected just because it wasn't an animal sacrifice. Right. And uh, I find that to be uh, impossible because in Leviticus uh, 6.20, right. it says, uh, This is an offering of Aaron and of his sons, which they shall offer unto the Lord in the day uh, when he is anointed, the tenth part of an ephah of fine flour right. for a meat offering perpetual. Yep. And it even says uh, later on that it's uh, everlasting. Let's see here. Uh, and the priest of his sons that is anointed in his stead shall offer it. it is a statute forever unto the Lord. It shall be holy burnt. Yeah. So to say that he always will reject a, a grain offering or a vegetable offering. Right. Uh, it goes against that, so that's, that's obviously not true. I, I, just, I know it's a minor point, Yeah. but there are a lot of people that say that. They say that, that the only reason why Abel got accepted because it was a lamb, mm-hmm. and then the only reason why Cain's got rejected because it wasn't, that's mm-hmm. uh, totally ludicrous. Yeah, I, I don't think we can definitively say either way. Because it might have been that God, I mean, because there are certain times you're not allowed to offer a grain offering or, or a flower offering, like on the Day of Atonement. You can't do that. So it might have been that he told, I mean, we, we're in ignorance here. It might have been that he told Cain, you must offer, you know, an animal sacrifice. We don't know. But wh- whatever it was, God wasn't pleased with it. And God wasn't pleased, and his heart wasn't right. Whether it's because he was supposed to offer something else, or because his heart wasn't right as he was offering what he was offering, his heart wasn't right. That's, that's the main problem. But it, either way, it, there's a problem with, with Cain there. Right. And, but we can't definitively say that way, I don't think. Yeah. Oh, Brother Sean. Uh, could you kind of touch on Hebrews 11, 17 through 19? Compare that with the accounting on the bottom of the internet. Kind of trying to figure out the idea of figurative sex. He's talking about the body going to die. Right, and it is a figurative sense of bringing back from the dead. So that doesn't mean he's going to kill him and have him rise from the dead. But he is bringing back from the dead because he was going to kill him if God allowed him to. But I still think, based upon what Abraham was saying there, he said God will provide the lamb. And then God did provide the lamb. You know, and, and I don't, I don't think Abraham's thinking in his head, well, God's going to take back on his promise here. So, yeah, I read through Hebrews 11 about this. We can read it real quick. But by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Yeah, so even if he would have went through with it, God could have raised him from the dead. I was but, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we really can't know definitively what his mindset is. I mean, I, I am I am offering my opinion there, obviously, but we know he believed God, and, and I think I think combined with what he said there of God's going to provide a lamb. I mean, I guess you could say that he's just saying that to his son, so his son doesn't get upset or something like that, but Genesis 22. Verse five. Yeah, verse 5. Yeah. Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. And then in verse uh, 7, look the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So, if Isaac was that burnt offering, then I mean, I guess you can kind of say he already did provide them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, I guess you can go either way. My, my opinion on it still stands, though, that I still think he had that mindset that he uh, was going to provide something else. 
That's exactly what he did. But thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Hmm? Um, I haven't looked into it myself, but I've heard it taught. Yeah. The um, provide for himself. I, I, I remember, but I know I've heard it taught some, somewhere in the past. Will provide himself. I don't know if that. Have you have you heard that before? No, I haven't. Okay, I don't know how the how the Hebrew reads right there. No. Nope. If there's a for or provide himself. If it, if it can be actually, can be read that way in the Hebrew, will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Interesting. Uh, as a as a foreshadowing, Jesus yeah. is himself the lamb. Mm-hmm. So it'd be just it'd be interesting to look at. Sure. To see if that, but I, I have heard that taught mm-hmm. somewhere in the past. Yeah. So yeah, it might be something with the Hebrew there. It'd be interesting. Yeah, it's interesting.